Hi, everybody. It's uh, Ryan and Megan, and this is Authentic Conversations, and we're going to do a quick catch-up podcast and then resume our regularly scheduled podcasting. So, hi, I'm Megan. Hi, Megan. I'm Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Ryan and I are in different places while uh, we're doing this, so... Um, we're trying out some new software as well. Um, so our last podcast was about a year ago, uh, maybe a little bit longer, a year and a half ago. Uh, Ryan, do you want to do a recap of what you did in the last year and a half in two minutes? Um, well, I've moved. I moved to California. Um, I'm the dean of the college at Deep Springs College, which is a different kind of experimental college, which is where I seem to keep ending up um, at, at uh, places that are trying experimental things. But this is quite different. Deep Springs is 100 years old, and it's a two-year college, very small, only 26 students, sometimes called a micro college. Um, and it, it is a working cattle ranch that the students work while they're also taking a liberal arts curriculum. And there's also a large amount of uh, student governance they're involved in kinds of things. So I sort of feel like I'm doing another field assignment in the world of higher education to try and understand more about that landscape, really driven to figure out what kinds of learning environments and communities really make significant difference. So I've been here over a year now. So I live in Eastern California, an hour from the nearest town, um, pretty close to the Nevada border and north of Death Valley. That's a good summary. That's awesome. Um, and how many students do you have at Deep Springs? 26. 26 And it was students. all male. It started in 20, uh, 1917. It was all male until 2018. So it's been co-ed for the past four years. That's so interesting. Um, I know from our conversations that we could do an entire podcast series called Deep Springs Adventures. Um, what is the most interesting thing that you've uh, learned or come across or been surprised by since you've been at Deep Springs? That's a long list. But I think there's, there's something kind of coalescing about the really powerful learning experiences for students seem to involve letting them take the take ownership, take the reins, literally here at Deep Springs, take the reins, uh, forces, um, take the wheel of the tractors. And um, let them learn by being the ones who are the ones really driving the process. But there's a price to pay for that. And the price you pay is one of anxiety. Because if you're on the staff or faculty, it's challenging to let students have ownership and have the ability to sort of articulate, assert their own agency in situations because they don't know what they're doing. They learn a tremendous amount by it. Um, but I've, I've started to really notice how um, it's that anxiety barrier that often is more of the, uh, that's more what prevents educational exper experiments than I think than anything. And so it's it's wonderful benefit to let students have ownership of things, but you've got to have the chutzpah, the uh, stomach to really handle what that means. That's interesting. Um, when you say anxiety, do you mean anxiety of 
students, faculty, parents. Yeah, I mean, of losing control of the process, right? So the thing that sort of everyone wants to believe is that education is a controllable process that you just script and you run someone through. But, um, you know, you start to look at that up close and you realize, you know, you and I talk about this very easily. You realize that that's kind of a facade. You know, scripted education is pretty minimal in terms of what it achieves. But if you want students to really learn responsibility or really learn what an inquiry means or really learn how to make decisions together, you have to actually give over the ownership of those things to students. You have to, have to actually let them, you know, do the work. I mean, we have at Deep Springs, for example, students are fixing vehicles, students are responsible for uh, cooking the food, for um, working the ranch, and there's supervisors to it. But goodness, you know, you watch the students try to do these things. They make they make a lot of mistakes. They're not really, you know, and they're, they're, they're sort of at the very early stages of their adulthood, right, where they haven't really developed a sense of pride in work. And so, you know, I mean, I have a student who's, who's been working under me to manage the office paperwork. And it's like, that's serious stuff. It's our bills and it's our books. Um, and our student makes a lot of mistakes. And so, you know, why on earth would you do that? Well, the student learns a lot from being able to do that. But I lose control, direct control of the process um, by letting the student have ownership of that situation. The same is true in a classroom. When you start to incorporate more active participation from students, they take the course or classes in different directions than you expect and you lose control as a faculty member. Doesn't mean you can't still regain steering, but it's a different kind of, you're not driving it, right? It's a different kind of experience. Um, and then also at Deep Springs, I mean, the students are, the, the faculty hiring committee is students. And I advise. And so I do definitely do advise, but they're the ones making these kinds of decisions. It's tremendously valuable experience for them. And are they sort of like 18-year-olds trying to make a decision? Yes. And at other times, they're incredibly impressive with how well they rise to the task. So it's like wonderful opportunities are available if you really give ownership over to students. But it's a lot to stomach as a professor because you have to let go of control of the process and sort of be willing to engage in more of an improv freestyle advising role of the students. And by the way, you know, as you will know, um, you will know better than most, right? The, uh, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, one of my favorite cognitive biases that I've learned the name of in the past year is that novices greatly overestimate their competence when they're starting something. Right. So students greatly overestimate what they think they can understand, what they think they can do. Um, but the real the way they they learn what they don't know. Right. Is the humbling process of direct experience and direct mistakes, et cetera. So these springs is set up to be that way. But, uh, you know, and, and my favorite educational projects are ones that put students really in the driver's seat of something. But I have seen now multiple times what it takes from the, 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 the leadership, the faculty, the staff in navigating such a thing. And it just takes a willingness to, you just gotta love the student learning process more than you hate letting go of the control that you have of the situation. Right. I wonder, um, I wonder if you have any ideas about what kind of, uh, like, what are the, who, what are the faculty that can do that? Like, is there anything, like, is there a theme across the faculty? Like, they're all Virgos or they're all, <laughs> no. like, no. whatever, right? Like, is there, or is it, like, yeah. 
like I guess I'm asking is it is it experience is it a type like is it a field is it a personality like what what is it I think there's two things that make a really significant difference and this is just off the top of my head so but these two things jump out to me when you say that and I wonder if this resonates with your experience the two things are one I think there's a, a, a really deep or authentic sense of curiosity on behalf on part of the faculty member. If they're genuinely interested in what the learning is about, um, the subject to be learned, um, and sort of really excited and welcoming of others to be curious about it too, right? Like that curiosity can become infectious. So I think, you know, just a, lo a love of a, a sort of curiosity um, and willingness to kind of, you know, see new things as a result of that curiosity. And the other thing I think that's really interesting to watch is, uh, or, or necessary, is um, the development of empathy and really starting to understand what the student experience is like. And I think, I, I think far more teachers end up not end up, I think as teachers, we all end up thinking that our student experience is something very different than it actually is. We think that we see a couple nods in a classroom and we're like, yeah, we're a great teacher. Um, but if you really start getting up close and being like, well, what did you really learn? Can here, I'm going to give you a new situation. I'll do it in my math class, right? Like where, okay, great. You know, I can, I'm, I'm a great explainer of math concepts and I'll get nods in a classroom. It's a great feeling for me. But then if I actually turn students into a situation that they haven't seen before based on the material we were studying, it starts to become really obvious to me actually how little they've understood or like, you know, how okay. much slower it needs to be for them to develop it. And then having their experience be more important to me than getting to where I think it should be getting or getting to where I feel good, um, I think is a really defining factor. So faculty members who are able to just love what they teach, but also really love the student experience, you know, there's these kinds of models where you, you put a lot of ownership on the students they're powerful and they, you know, are, they're incredibly fulfilling if your attention, a teacher's attention is on this experience of the student and watching that experience in a really authentic way, not sort of a surface level way of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they did fine on my test, you know, but more like, are they actually grappling with the material in a deepening way, the, the same way a researcher does when they're embracing a topic? And if you can develop that kind of empathy, what's interesting is I find faculty members, teachers will start to shift their allegiance towards content coverage, more towards student experience. So it's less about trying to get through all the checklist of things you need to get through and being mad at the students for not keeping up and more about like really thinking about where the students get the most value. And you don't need to cover all the content for that. No, you know, that's not the point. If they're able to actually get a few very deep ideas that they learn in a subject in a subject area, they'll be able to learn a lot more content that I could ever tell them. So, um, but it's it's hard because that student experience is often invisible unless you confront it directly somehow. And the only ways I've seen that happen are through sort of artificial ways of confronting it, like straight up making students responsible for something, you know, like in, at Quest, straight up making them responsible for their major, you know, a question that they have to articulate um, at Fulbright straight up making the students responsible for the design of the curriculum and at deep springs straight up making the students responsible for governance decisions and actual work with stakes mm -hmm. it's interesting that's no, fine uh authentic conversations you can't put them in a box 
Um, I wonder also, like while you were talking about that, I'm reflecting on um, my experience the last two years as a student and Mm. as a student in a school that doesn't center students and doesn't, you know, doesn't support the faculty um, in their uh, pedagogical design and is basically, like I think I've said publicly several times, that I had better teaching in 1990 at UBC in an enormous lecture hall than I'm getting in a really small program um, because people are hired for their uh, their uh, ability to be Eastern Asian medicine practitioners, not for their ability to teach. And then there's no... Um, emphasis or support for teaching so it's really content driven because that's how these folks were taught and it's also really um focused on um i um uh i looked up the mission statement for the chinese medicine program and the mission statement is the transmission of knowledge uh, the transmission okay. of the art and science of and spirit of Chinese medicine. That's what their goal is. And the transmission is content, right? It's not teaching folks how to be physicians who think for themselves or find things for themselves. And it got me thinking about what it would take to make the move where you go from a program which is transmitting content to a program that is uh, emphasizing student learning. And I I have a lot of ideas about it, but I'm curious what you think about, like, it's not a a do-over. It's not a, this has been there forever. It's not a, you know, start. It's a... You go into a program and you push the faculty to teach differently. Like, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I'm unfortunately what you're describing is, I mean, almost ubiquitous everywhere, right? Is sort of has the situation where the deep mystery of teaching isn't a robust inquiry. It's sort of like a you know, if you're an expert in a field, it should just be natural to say what you do, mm-hmm. right? And then everyone will understand. But this, this idea that learning is about transmission is really, really deeply embedded in, um, in kind of the human consciousness, right? And I think the reason is because it's really difficult to understand that the learner's world is different than the teacher's world, right? The teacher right. sees things that the learner doesn't, but we don't notice that. And so as a teacher, you're just sort of explaining what's obvious to you. And why the heck can't the learner get it the same way you just get it, right? And I think I'm reading this book right now um, called Time to Think. I I got it at Powell's because I was like, I need time to think. That's a great idea. I thought it was going to be about time management. And the, (laughs) the book is not about time management at all. The thesis of the book is that people think well when they have someone who listens well to them. And the whole book is about like how to listen to people to help facilitate them to be better thinkers. 
And something really jumped out at me at the at the book is teachers end up thinking that their job is to tell people how to think. Like, here's the way to do it. And then there's this sentence in the book that says, but here's the point. Your ideas are not their ideas. And it doesn't help someone when you try to tell them how to think if they're not actually trying to think for themselves. Right. So the better thing to do is not to try to tell them what to think. It's to create an environment where they have to think for themselves. That's the only thing that makes a difference for somebody. And the book talks about how we love to pat ourselves on the back when we think we've got something really good to tell someone. In fact, the book is the, the number one rule of the book, which is really interesting, is just don't interrupt people. Stop interrupting people. Like blurting in the answer to other people does not help them. And it actually like jars them. It rattles them and sort of tells them it's not safe for them to speculate and to think and try to work something through. And interestingly, when someone's thinking, it is a little bit of a longer process and they are bumbling, right? And also one of the, th the things that, that the author says in the book is if someone is being quiet, but their eyes are moving around, they're thinking, leave them alone. There's no reason to interrupt them in that process either. And it's interesting because it's made me think like, yeah, you know, there's something when you become an expert in something or when you get credentialed in something, it is kind of a bit of a, you know, what do I want to say? A little bit of an ego rush to be someone with that credential and to be someone with that, you know, status where you do have something authoritative to say about a subject. And then, of course, it would be natural that you should tell people what to think about it because you're the expert of it. Fine. The only problem with that, right, which you've pointed to, is it's just not what learning is. Being told things is not what learning is. And I, I still think, um, you know, that we could, one of my, there's, we've talked about this before, but, you know, one of the things that's really interesting, there was an article that came out in the Chronicle of Higher Education maybe a few months ago that was talking about why the heck don't STEM teachers do more active learning in their classes? at universities because there's so much evidence mounting that active learning is better for students. And what I mean is, you know, rather than lecture, students, you know, working through messy problems and trying to make sense of them themselves. It's just study after study is showing that students learn more. They learn more that way, right? But there's a real bias towards it because it's, it's the anxiety thing. It's really uncomfortable for faculty to facilitate. You lose mm -hmm. control. And, and you don't, and the students don't hit all the nuance and the depth that you know. And so it's better just to tell them what the nuance and the depth is. But here's the thing, it, it, they don't learn. The person okay. who's doing the thinking is the one who's doing the learning, right? The person who's struggling is the one who's doing the learning. So active learning makes students struggle and they learn. But it's terribly, you know, it's slower. Uh, it's more uncomfortable for both. I mean, you know, surveys of students, students don't like it either. They'd rather lecture. They'd rather have lecture learning because it's easier for them, but they don't learn as much. <laughs> and my favorite study, my favorite envision, brand new study was about two, two, three months ago came out, is looking at active learning of STEM courses over time. And so like, what happens to a first year biology student who takes an active learning intro bio course and doesn't cover the same amount of content and then goes into a second year bio? Do they get behind? And what do you think happens? No, they're not behind. They do better. They do better, even though they've been exposed to less content. That's the study over years, right? Mm -hmm. But it's so it's really interesting that like there's this idea that it's better for students to struggle to learn 
But it's actually very hard, I find, to get teachers to realize that that is what needs to happen and then to also get very comfortable having the student struggle be what you do in a class. Because it's a bit messy and students don't like it and they'll start complaining and some of them will say like, you're the teacher, you tell me. And it's like, I could, but it's not going to make a difference to your brain. So there's, you know, I mean, the problem is, Megan, you're like a super sophisticated active learning convert student who's gone into a fairly standard teaching environment. What you're describing is not anomalous, right? It's like what the default is, which is the experts think their job is to tell you how to think and drives you nuts. First of all, it drives you nuts, I think, because I don't think it's very pleasant for you, for anyone to try and tell you how to think. But secondly, (laughs) you recognize that it's just not beneficial, but you probably will notice sometimes that other students will sort of play that game you know, want to know what the professor says about something, they'll be more interested in that kind of note-taking lecture style. To be honest, most students prefer that. They prefer the the spoon-fed method when they don't understand what they're losing out of it because it's just easier. It's just so much easier when you don't have to be at risk or on the hook for, you know, speaking up, trying something and, and, um, and, and, and getting into the mess yourself. I think, um, yeah, I think that's true. I am, it's interesting. Um, I feel really torn um, in a couple of directions in this conversation. And one way is I wrote a blog post after at the end of this year, which was basically the number one thing my instructors could do is just shut up for like five seconds. And well, actually, it's not true. It's longer than five seconds. Clearly, they did a training where they were told to be quiet for seven seconds. So what they'll do is they'll be quiet and then they'll be like, five, six, seven. Okay, here's my next topic. And they it and it happens regularly in several classes. Um, and I think that what's important about that is that a, it's not funny for anybody sitting in the class and B, it's not giving anybody time to think. And so what then happens is whenever any of us have questions, we then have to interrupt the faculty in order to, um, ask our questions, which is fine for me to do because I'm older than most of them, but for a you know, 25 year old, and we're also in a very Confucian mindset where the elders know and they're right and they know the information and students should be grateful to be at the feet of the masters. Um, It's doubly difficult to interrupt and say, um, I'm, you know, I'm curious, can you say more about that? Or what about putting these things together? Um, Let alone asking a question and saying, I didn't understand that. Like, I have no idea what you just said. That was just like, blah, 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 crazy talk. I don't get it. Can you try again? Uh, so, and and across the board, there was no being quiet in order to ask questions. And in fact, what a lot of the faculty do is um, ask questions at the beginning of class and at the end of class when class has actually been done for 10 minutes, right? Like, I remember Bruce Alexander, the very first time I TA'd for him in 1998, he said, never ask, does anybody have any questions at the beginning of the lecture and then leap into your lecture and never do it at the end of your lecture when everybody's packing up because no, like, you're essentially shutting it down. Um, and then the other piece that I 
I wonder about, and there's two parts of it. And the first is um, managing one's own anxiety in order to kind of hang in that space of the students are going to do what the students are going to do. Like, I remember my first term teaching neuroscience at Quest. I had what I thought was a pretty good hour-long active learning thing where we were going to go through the Canadian Justice Code or Canadian Criminal Code and um, rewrite it based on information, like actual science about uh, pot, alcohol, and tobacco. And um, it was, you know, I thought it was an hour maybe that it would take. And it ended up taking two days, and I just let classes run with it. So six hours, right? Um, I just let classes run with it, and I never felt a moment of, this isn't worth it. But I wonder, with a um, with a, um, what's it called? Uh, board exams hanging over our heads if there isn't a sense that the faculty feel like they need to at least say the words of everything before we go through, right? Like at least, you know, like, like say the words so that we've heard the words at some point, because we have to do the studying on our own for the boards anyway. And then the other piece of that that I was thinking about was, um, oh, I've lost it. It's gone. Yeah, I can't. I I forgot it. I'll um I'll burst in if I remember it. Yeah, I mean, my my own. I feel like my own teaching career. Yeah, I mean, I remember early on, my very first year of teaching. Um, I didn't cover a topic because I ran out of time in a class. It just you know the, the questions got asked and. I didn't cover a topic, and I remember one of the the other professors was like, "You got to you got to talk about it. They they got to know it." You 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 know, and what what was interesting is I ended up at the end of the year, I end of semester, never getting to it, and I just felt like you know what, it's okay, it's a stupid thing. Like they can, it's not stupid, but they can they can figure out how to do it, and whether or not I say that say it to them, is that really what's making a difference for them? You know, the most the most significant thing that happened to me is I had a direct confrontation with how little my students were actually learning from my lectures. And um, that jarred me. I, I just, you know, because I felt like I was explaining things. I, I, I was, this is my second year of teaching. I was, I was a good lecturer. Actually, it was my second semester. It was my first year of teaching. Second semester, first year of teaching. I was a great lecturer and I was getting, I had the best evaluations in my department. And um and then, a st I, you know, reference the story a lot, but I, I, I ran into a student and he just didn't remember anything from my courses. And this student was a good student. He'd asked really good questions. He was bright. He did well in his homework. And I was like, what do you mean you don't remember anything? He's like, it's like it's gone. And I, I that jarred me. And I, I ended up trying to figure out if that was common. And to my horror, it was really common. You know, and then it that's kind of what motivated me to feel like, okay, this isn't working. This is this something is wrong. Like I'm lecturing about calculus well and the student it's not sticking with the students. What's the problem? And it, it kind of took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that, oh, 
who, whoever is doing the struggling is the one who's doing the learning. And it made me start to realize that that struggle is really important. And when a faculty member shifts their allegiance to the struggle, um, rather than the sort of content delivery, that's what facilitates, I think, what you were talking about, like why you let a course go for two days on something you thought was going to take an hour, because you see the struggle that's happening. You see the learning that's happening as a result of that struggle. It's real learning. It's not just checkbox of content. It's like doing what a researcher does, which is actually to try and work through, work out a new understanding um, of the situation. Um, you know, and I mean, for me, I eventually, I think what happened to me is I realized that was far more important than me saying things in class. And I actually developed a kind of like, you know, thumb at my nose attitude towards, I'm not going to cover all the content on my CAC text, but of course I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous because the students aren't going to learn. I'm going to pick a few things that I think are better, and I'm not going to apologize about this. I'm going to have the students learn those things by really struggling and dealing with it. But I think at that point, I, I was really convinced that it's that kind of struggle that makes the biggest difference. And that's the reason that anxiety is tolerable, I think, is because, you know, it's like, you, you, you see the benefit that the students get by taking the risk. Right. And, um, you know, teaching in this way doesn't mean you're not intervening. In fact, you're intervening all the time, right? Like teaching in the way when students are struggling, students are trying to, you know, taking ownership of the problem. It doesn't mean you just sit back. You're intervening all the time. You're like constantly, oh God, yes. constantly trying to determine if it's productive, constantly trying to determine you know, and constantly trying to sit on your hands, right? So it's like what you're saying, when to, when to speak and when to not speak. And, you know, so it's not just you let them run wild. There's a lot of intervention. And my classes are still very structured. But they're, um, the, the things that are structured are the sort of boundary conditions of the class, of the problem. And then they're the ones who are really doing the wrestling. And I sometimes will do this, you know, Socratic thing where I'll just let them run for a while. And they're like, they keep looking at me like, is this the right thing? And I'm like, well, let's see what happens. Drives them nuts and they complain about it until they, the light bulb goes off. And then they're like, yes, I think this must make sense. And I'm like, well, okay, well, what do you think? Are you willing to sort of, you know, you know, be convinced of this of yourself? And anyway, it's funny because if there's any, math is a strange subject where there's very much an authoritative, you know, there's sort of like expertise and authority are powerful in the mathematical world. And it bends, it just messes, it messes so many people up. Um, anyway, so I think, I think the point is um, your, your, your comment about, you know, letting the students run for two days on the, on the project they were, they were working on. You knew to do that because I think you had some understanding of how much better it was for them. But the problem is, is that something has to prompt that understanding and the average lecturer higher educator right who hasn't spent time thinking about pedagogy i mean you describe nunm you know that your situation as, as kind of dire and awful and unfortunately the tragedy is i think it's actually much just, just kind of normal you know and, and it's because you me. have people who aren't i know it's awful but it's because people who are you know i almost feel like the way you develop teachers is you have them try their instincts on what they think teaching is. And then you confront them directly with the breakdowns that result. Right. And, um, you know, the very first time I ever saw myself videotaped as a teacher, I was a graduate student. I was horrified. And we, we did this as part of my teaching class that we had a, um, 
you know, I had a teaching class my first year, but we, they, the, the TA videotaped us. And I watched my videotape and I was just like, God, Ryan, shut up. Stop talking so much at these students. They're just on the brink of getting curious and you're sitting there swooping in with all the things you want to tell them. Shut up. And it was, it was like, it was awful. This was so I didn't horrible know to watch. this. I yeah, totally didn't know this. I didn't know that. That's story. awesome. Yeah, it was horrible to watch. I mean, and I think that that really taught me that I'm very, fr- I, 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 want, I want to feel like I'm helpful to people. So I can feel my instinct to want to swoop in in the class and like save someone when they're struggling, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I deal with it today all, all the time, but it just doesn't help them. It, no. it doesn't help them when I'm trying to do their thinking for them. And so, you know, anyway, I think th- these are what I mean. You know, when, when it comes to teaching, we, we think teaching's. I, I think it's funny. Most people, especially my students, students here, right? They're the ones who hire and evaluate the faculty. You kind of think teaching's easy. You just like, don't do the bad things you saw your teacher do and just do it better than they did. And then, oh my God, ever, totally. then you start to learn to teach, right? The first time you ever teach by yourself, Oh my gosh, if it's not the most complicated thing you've ever run into in your life, right? It, and it's so weird because like things you think are going to be straightforward and like make sense don't. <laughs> Terrible. Right? And things yeah. that are like random things, all of a sudden students are talking about how beneficial they are. And you're like, what the heck is going on? And I didn't mean to you, do that. <laughs> yeah, what you start to realize is that it's not this like scripted environment. It's this strange, you know, force of its own making. And I think what happens is people think, you know, that teaching is about telling people what to think. And then you start to confront, if you start to confront faculty with the breakdowns that result from that, that's when the anxiety that's necessary to tolerate student ownership becomes what you actually want to do because it's just too much. It's too painful to try and do anything else. Right. I am. I uh, I remember uh, one of my, well, actually my favorite cohort at Quest, uh, one of their assignments was to teach for part of the class. And I remember two of my favorite students coming up to me afterwards and saying, holy shit, you do this every day for three hours. I spent hours yeah. and hours and hours on 20 minutes in order to make it work. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's what we do. Uh, and I also just remembered what I was going to say. Um, you were talking about uh, how the students don't like active learning. And that's been a big realization for me this year in classes is that when the faculty, some of the faculty start to do something that one might call active learning, I'm like, oh, God, no, like, this is just cringy and painful. And it's not like I'm not learning and nobody's participating. And I always feel this like weird allegiance with a faculty member because I know what it feels like to stand up there and, you know, have nobody in the class participating. So I'm doing this like, wait, 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 wait. And then nobody answers. And I'm like, uh, is it blah? So I guess like now I'm on the other side and I'm like, just, just don't, don't try your, don't try active learning either. 
because it's fucking horrible. Like, just don't do either of those things. Right. So I'm at the point now, like, I actually learn really well in a lecture when the faculty just talks and I take notes. That's that's kind of my best learning environment because it gives me the freedom to, it takes all the pressure off me and it gives me the freedom to just put ideas together across classes. And I've also, you know, like I sat, you know, I stepped in my first university class in September, 1990. So I'm what, 32 years in to university classes. That's horrifying. Is that true? Wow. This September will be my 32nd year in a university. Anyway, so I, um, but what I find is the, um, what I'm, what I feel resentful about is, uh, we're in classes like 30 hours a week, not learning anything. And so I'm doing most of the learning outside of classes and over the summer. And I think that's where the um, the, cru- the like crux of uh, the lack of effective teaching meets the road for me. Does that make sense? Can I ask a question about what you said about active learning? So are were you saying that you also resist it in the same way that all students resist it because it does turn the class into an awkward environment? Um, I'm in a cohort of students. My cohort, the probably the average age, if you take me out of my cohort, the average age is probably about 30. Um, and so I'm 20 years older than most of the people that I'm going to school with. Um, and there's, we came in during COVID. So there's a re and also the university's, um, exploding. Uh, they're losing faculty members. They're losing tuition monies. They're, you know, people are dropping out. So it's a, it's a bad it's a bad situation generally. But I would say that my sense from my cohort is that when, and now granted, we probably only had two faculty that did anything that looked like active learning. And that when they would get started in it, there was definitely a quick ask a question so we don't have to do active learning. Um, yeah. Yeah. To the point that I I actually, one of the faculties, um, fake active learning was so fucking bad that I would feel it coming and I would start asking them questions where I was like, oh, I have a really important question to ask right now about this utterly random topic so that I don't have to do this fake active learning thing that you're doing. Well. Fake, fake active learning is probably the worst. I mean, the problem, right? So, you know, active learning, learning by just, just being active is not equivalent to learning. And it's almost the wrong, we need a better term. You know, I mean, when I think about active learning, I mean, a recent learning activity experience I've had in my life is learning to make beer, right? Learning to brew beer. And so I took a course, a four hour course and totally had this sort of process, a very good, you know, 
very knowledgeable instructor kind of go through the process. Looked totally easy, clear, right? I took good notes. He had the answers to questions, right? And then the very best thing that I could have done was I went home and tried to brew a beer myself and then just ran into a thousand things I didn't know what to do, right? And like all the clarity of the process and the instruction was like, uh, and I was left with all these judgment calls and I ended up making a list of questions and ended up calling back the homebrew shop to ask my questions. And then they answered them, right? And then, and then I went back and then, and then, and then um, you know, I ended up trying to figure out how to make my own recipes. And that was also horrifying because there's all this risk in that. I didn't want to make bad beer, but, but that's what active learning is, right? It's not that you don't have instruction. It's that you're taking ownership of the process of trying to problem solve the thing that you're doing. Um, and teachers can sometimes misunderstand that active learning should be students saying the things that they think students should be saying. So, <laughs> right, they, they make, make the mistake that, okay, here's what active learning is. I'm not gonna do the lecture, you're gonna do the lecture. So it's gonna run like a Mad Lib. Yep. And I'm gonna prompt you, and when you say the thing I want, we're going to move on. Isn't that going to be great? And we can do seven seconds of you saying something and then I'll fill in if you don't get it. And that's not active there's, learning. That's, and there's a, that's, yeah. There's also a piece in there where the faculty tend to get frustrated, right? So if you're not giving them what they want to put into their Mad Lib, there's a sense of you guys have failed as students because you haven't given me exactly the word that I wanted back. Even if what you've given back is an interesting conversation. Yeah. They, they're yeah. like, I want you to say this word right here. And if you don't give them that word back, they get angry. Yeah. And there's that's this not, like... That's not active learning. Exactly. That's not active learning. No, that's just sort of still scripted learning, but trying to shift who's saying the script. Yeah, I, the, best active learning, the best active learning activities I know you know, there, there can be, there can be like, you know, expertise technique at the beginning of it, right? Like, here's some things you need to know, right? Here's how to make beer. We'll all do it together. And then, and then what you do is let the student go out into an adaptive situation where they have to struggle through a problem and they've got enough minimal knowledge to parse it, but then they don't know. And they have to make the judgment calls that, that, that any kind of, you know, proficient person in that area has to make. And then you come back together right? And then you coalesce and you share. And at that point, you don't need to lecture the students on anything. They just had a little experience themselves that they can give a lecture on what they learned through it, right? The point mm -hmm. is that it just helps condense it and re reinforce it. So, you know, I think that's, this is the fake active learning is, is trying to have students talk while at the same time not feeling anxious because you're still controlling the script. And yeah, you get mad at people when they don't say what they want you know, what you want. And so, I mean, that's just, this is, this is why it's funny. Some of the best, you know, Pogol process oriented guided inquiry learning. It's a STEM thing. Yeah, um, totally. I actually, we, we, so we had a, we had an expert of it come over to Fulbright um, and teach faculty in it. And one of the very, very brilliant things about Pogol process oriented guided inquiry learning is it's highly structured so that a professor can implement it. And what it looks like is step one, professor, you know, introduces ideas. Step two, professor explains this process. Step three, professor gives teams problems. Step four, 
teams have different <laughs> members that are responsible for different things on working and problems. Step five, professor lets the teams run. Step six, everyone reports back, right? It's this really, really structured thing, even working with timers. And I think it was designed by computer scientists. And what they're what they're what they were getting at is like this idea that, you know, active learning doesn't mean structureless. It just means when the thinking has to get done, where is the thinking happen? And so the Pogol is like, Pogol is really funny because it's like one person's going to be the team timekeeper, one person's going to be the team leader, one person's going to be the team note taker. One, you know, and so everyone gets kind of these roles, but then they have to go through problem solving, and you know what? They 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 go through great thinking with it, and actually the roles help them stay a little bit anchored in something while they're going through, you know, the problem solving experience. Because I think, you know, the, the downside is if you just hand a problem to a student with no with nothing and it's too far over their head, right? What's this this Piaget idea that you have to have, you know, and yeah. you'll know this better than I do, but you have to have it's enough basis Piaget. of support. It's not Piaget, enough support, no. but enough it's challenge. By Gotsky. By Gotsky. By Gotsky, zone of proximal development. But yeah, zone of proximal development. Bogotsky, zone of proximal development. Sorry, not Piaget. I can understand why you might lean psychologist. To, I can understand why you might lean towards a French um, researcher as opposed to a Russian researcher at this point in the world. But the point is that you you know, and if you if you do active learning where you just sort of like don't give students enough structure, it, it can also not be productive. But I think the point is like it's just who's doing the thinking is really what it comes down to. Right. right? Who's doing the struggling? And then design a structured activity, design a loose activity, design a short activity, design a long activity. It doesn't kind of matter. It's just that, you know, you have to be willing to let students do the thinking. And then also they're going to take it places you didn't plan to take it. <laughs> so, you know. Totally. You got to adapt. That's interesting. The class, the class that I, um, one of the classes that I enjoyed teaching the most and the students gave me the worst evaluations. And I think they learned the most because I did a sneaky evaluation at the end was comparative cognition. And that was when I decided that um, there is a cost to getting people to think for themselves and that you really need to step back and say, I'm willing to take this cost. And so I can imagine high anxiety faculty that want students to like them and want students to be their friends and, you know, don't, you know, have really, really thin skins, um, that those would be folks who would have a lot of difficulty stepping into, um, and pushing to do uh, student-centered problem-based learning because they're the ones that are going to get the shitty evaluations and not get tenure at a more traditional place, right? Yeah, no, I mean, there's so many barriers. That's right. And, and there's so many challenges to it. And there's also this sort of fundamental ego idea about how necessary you feel you need to be in a class, right? Right. Like I need, to, I need to be the one who's giving the answers. There's sort of an ego identification that comes with that versus like, 
letting students discover answers for themselves and help guide them towards the sort of correct instincts, you know, confirm for them what they're, what, what good instincts are, et cetera. You know, you, you're not sort of asserting yourself as much of the expert. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, this is why I feel like, you know, you're hard on your faculty because like, come on, you guys, this isn't learning, but I'm, it's like, it's not intuitive. You know, it's not, it's not a default way. It's not a default way of teaching to really put the, another person's inquiry as the center part of your focus. It has to be cultivated somehow. And the only ways I've ever, I've seen it done are like extreme situations that force it, you know, like, like force it because the students make their own major or because the students have a significant role in designing the program, or because the students have direct ownership over making uh, 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 decisions about, um, you know, the nature of such and such. Because like, you know, you see the importance of doing that and the importance of kind of embedding it in structure. And then even inside of those things I just mentioned, those are kind of key things from all the, the three institutions I've been at most recently, even then, faculty will protest against them and will complain about them, right? Letting students decide their own majors is a terrible idea because students don't come up with good, well, you know, they sort of have these charlatan ideas, right? That's Ugh. one response you can give to yep, them. Yeah, I've heard it. Yeah, of course. But, you know, you also see what's available on the other side of that. The, the, the thing that's amazing on the other side of that is students will also rise to the set of expectations that you set. And yes. if you set the expectation that someone can create an inquiry for themselves, students will outperform anything you ever thought they would, right? Exactly. We've also seen that side of the spectrum. You know, and are there yeah. some charlatans, blah, 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 sure. Um, but the point is, it's uncomfortable for faculty to facilitate that, right? When the co-design experience at Fulbright, we had some faculty, you know, kicking and screaming about that because what students should be uh, weighing in on how to teach? They don't know how to teach, right? They've never done it before, right? Like that's, you can say right. that, sure. It sounds, it sounds rational and legitimate. Um, but my goodness, what happens when you invite a student to comment on teaching and you tell teachers to listen? What happens exactly. out of that is, is profound, exactly. right? And then, you know, at Deep Springs, I still am like, oh God, you know, students will make these decisions, but, you know, and, they, and sort of wrestle with things and, you know, but, I, but I, it's interesting because the committee I advise at Deep Springs, which is the curriculum committee, it's all students. I've seen that committee perform at levels that I have not seen faculty members perform at in terms right. of solid decision-making, in terms of you know, well-vetted conversation and thought. And it just reaffirms to me, it's the right idea to let students have ownership over these things, even if 90% of the time it's a little bit gut-wrenching because they're naive and they, they, you know, they have some bad instincts and it's not well-versed. The 10% of the time that they have these insights that aren't possible otherwise, make it all worth it. How do you have that be what most higher education faculty have as their pedagogical experience is a major challenge um, because the whole industry isn't set up to, you know, the, the higher, anyway, this is a separate topic, but higher education industry is really set up to have people, you know, be distinguished by their ability to be intelligent and be researchers and build a reputation for themselves, not on their ability to really hand over thinking to others. <laughs> that was profound. Um, and I'm gonna, about to um, 
respond with a social media thing. I know you hate social media. Um, there is a beautiful social media. Um, I don't know what you call them. It's not a meme, but it's like people. Uh, there's a. Uh, it's people who say um, scientists say, and then it's scientists who are reporting on something ridiculous that they did or something ridiculous that they believed and thought was true. And my favorite so far has been a guy who's like, the next time you hear somebody say scientists believe, I want you to hear this. I believed that I could fit an entire orange into my mouth. (laughs) And I put the whole orange in my mouth and I tried to um, masticate this orange in my mouth. And I ended up um, not being able to and choking. And it started to get really bad as I was trying to swallow this orange. And I sucked in air really quickly. And I sucked citrus juice into my lungs. And I ended up burning my lungs. So the next time you hear a scientist say or scientists believe, remember I believed I could put an orange, a whole orange in my mouth. And so... um, that makes me think about the ex- this like how we're holding these two spaces, right? Like we're saying, put students at the center, give students power to make decisions, get them thinking, get them engaged, do do this. And faculty, you need to kind of be the border collies running around the circle and making sure nobody in the flock goes over the side of the cliff. And then we're going to judge you by these archaic standards that that make no sense and are one of the reasons why I think higher higher education is defunct. But I'm currently reading a book called The Shamanic Bones of Zen. And it's written by Zenju Earthlin Manual, who is a uh, Zen... Monk? None. Monk? Practitioner? None. Practitioner? I don't know what the proper term is. Um, But who has been ordained in Zen Buddhism for like 30 years and is talking about how there are these practices in Zen Buddhism that she has experienced that feel to her like shamanic practices. And so I'm halfway through the book, and effectively what this brilliant, spectacular human has done is come at experientially through lived experience, through her personal experience of being a Zen Buddhist, what scores and scores of Sinologists have come at with this idea that Buddhism, classical Chinese medicine, um, uh, a lot of Japanese acupuncture, Korean acupuncture, Vietnamese acupuncture is where the sort of shamanic barefoot doctor roots of this medicine went to when they got um, squashed by the Chinese government 
and different governments along the way. And so it's been, on one hand, it's a great read. It's called The Shamanic Bones of Zen. And on the other hand, it's also really interesting having this incredible um, articulation of a person's experience leading them to a belief about Zen Buddhism. Whereas I've been learning the academic roots of the shamanic underpinnings of East Asian medicine, classical Chinese medicine. So it's, um, I just wanted to bring that up because it feels a lot like what you're saying around, you know, you need to have the experience of thinking. And so on the one hand, we've got all this great pedagogical research saying, you know, like, what are those books? Um, Make it making stick. it stick. What's the other How one? Keeping it small. What's the one that's small? Small teachings. S- small teachings. Yeah. So we've got all these great books that are like science says, a psychologist once thought, um, this is this is the way to get things to stick, to to teach students better, blah, blah, blah. But then there's also this like really deep experiential aspect to um education and learning and um, the experience of learning and how you know you're learning that we don't really talk about in those books, right? The only thing that I can think of in any of those three books is actually negative evidence where students think that they're learning better if they're learning all one topic at a time when actually they're learning better if they're doing interleaving and they're learning um, like they're doing different topics um, interspersed with each other, like layered between each other, and then they learn better because we need, humans need that comparison aspect. But I just thought it was so interesting to think for all that I push back against, you know, everything's experience and my experience is the most important thing in the world. Um, Just how interesting it is that, um, being confronted with cases where it actually is experience that is getting us to the same place as our, you know, big prefrontal cortex and all of our great brain thinking. There's a, that's very Deweyan of you. I think John Dewey had his finger on something very profound, right? This idea that, like, you know, you know, experience is the gatekeeper to education. What's fascinating, right, is when someone through their own experience will create a understanding that aligns with a body of knowledge that has been, you know, has a tradition. And someone through their sort of, you know, own work from the ground up, lifting up their own bootstraps, arrives at something similar. That can be really profound. You know, what's interesting about that is um, that makes me think of the trimates, right? Like Jane Goodall, Bruda Galdacas, and Diane Fossey. And there was a real, like, a very clear understanding of what monkeys and apes did in the wild before the three of them, before Leakey sent the three of them out. And it was entirely based on, um, I'm just quoting Haraway right now, but it was entirely based on masculine ideas, hunting, 
Um, and so all of these monkeys and apes were thought of as these like brutal, vicious, you know, humanoid figures that would like brutally attack each other and aren't they scary and blah, 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 right? And then they sent Jane, Diane, and Brute out into the field. And there's there's a huge essentialism in here about women as nurturers that I hate, that I don't really want to talk about right now, but just bracket that. But they got them into the field, and Jane Goodall's like, hey, guess what? Chimps use tools just like humans. And Diane's like, hey, guess what? There's really deep social relationships going on with these gorillas. And Barute's like, hey, guess what? Orangutans aren't actually socially isolated if you give them food and let them be together. So the the entire field of primatology is based in these three women who went out and experienced the animals as opposed to went out and hunted the animals to bring them back. And that's exactly the same as Evelyn Fox Keller's book on Barbara McClintock, A Feeling for the Organism, which she wrote about Barbara McClintock studying corn instead of studying fruit flies. So there almost feels like underneath all of this, there's a a sort of a feminist critique of science of... Mm. So like almost like it, it's almost like there needs to be like a feminist critique of education oh, that, yeah. you know, that like points towards like we've got bell hooks. Right. And we've got um, Paulo Freire. Right. So we've got ways of understanding pedagogy as systems of power. But what would it mean to understand hierarchy? Right. But what would it mean to understand education as an experiential inquiry? as opposed to as a academic inquiry. You know, that's really interesting because what I hear what you say in that is this bias in the academy that knowledge is a kind of absolute thing that you're constantly building on, right? And constructing and adding to. But what if it's like a different way of viewing that is education is a process of deepening that is owned by the person doing the deepening that is about, uh, oh gosh, can't get through a podcast without me mentioning Heidegger. Heidegger (laughs) has this thing in the first, the very first thing he does in being in time is he breaks down the etymology of the word phenomenology. And it's, he he goes into the Greek of it. It's two, two parts, right? Phenomenon and logos and phenomenon, right? Phenos to light me comes from the word to light up, right? So a phenomenon is something that's getting lit up, that has light shown upon it, that, sh- that sort of stands out because you can see it. And logos, right, is speaking in a way that allows you to, um, you know, speak at something in a way. And when you put those two things together, you're something that's being lit up because how you're speaking about it is directing, you know, how you're directing attention to it is having it light up in the way that it's, that it is in and of itself. Um, that's a little bit clumsy, but the point is like the phenomenology experience of that is like when you're learning something and digging it out, it lights it up in a particular way and how you're, you know, the way that you get into it is through your own looking. And so we often think of like, 
mathematics as something that's been established brick by brick by mathematicians. And then what, what people are doing is they're recreate, they're learning the thing that is absolute that got put in place with so-and-so's name on it. But what if that's not really the case? What if it, if you engage in a mathematical inquiry, you're cross-cutting through lots and lots of ideas that are sort of intrinsic to the subject. And when you come to a conclusion, it is a bit uniquely your own. Um, and of course, it aligns with what someone has already seen, the first person to have articulated it or you know put it into existence. But I'm often, I'm often, I mean, one of the reasons I love teaching math is I'm, I, I'm always so interested in how people end up seeing something, putting something together, and it's really exciting for me. Even really simple things, when 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 someone has an epiphany for themselves, and they're like, oh my goodness. You know, this is what this is what this means. And it always feels like it has a little bit of a, you know, it's not like they're finding absolute knowledge. There's sort of this powerful phenomenon arising in front of them. They're able to point to. Um, and um, that really is what learning is about, as opposed to just being able to, you know, point to the brick that someone else laid down. That's really interesting to think about. Um especially the idea of um the um like what what is knowledge right remember we did that at quest where all the faculty wrote like what their what's truth what is truth right okay maybe not knowledge um but it's interesting, right? Because I remember David Helfand's answer was um, whatever we're holding. I'm going to get this wrong and he's going to be on the podcast so um, he can fix it when he's on it. But it was effectively like what we're holding lightly onto until we have a better understanding and better uh, tools, right? Like it was something uh, like that. Um, which is his view of science, right? Science is what we, what most of the evidence points towards until we have better, better tools to find better evidence, right? Kind of a Kuhnian, Kuhnian Yeah, exactly, exactly, totally. Um, so I wonder, I wonder then about what that looks like in a classroom, when you've got, you know, 80, 30, 10 students who all are coming to knowledge in different ways with different exam, like different um, epistemologies, basically, and different backgrounds. And just the difficulty of trying to understand the phenomenological, I don't know what the word Heidegger would use, like standpoint of each, and just the difficulties, world, world, phenomenological world of each, and then trying to teach to that. And just the impossibility of, maybe the impossibility of education, period. Well, no, I actually think I think there is there are some really interesting places to take that conversation. I'm conscious that we've had our short catch up and we're talking for over an hour already. Oh, right. So um, 
Okay, let's try and keep this under an hour and 27 minutes. So we're at an hour and seven minutes. Um, one big thing that you've learned in the intervening time since the last... Um, oh, yeah. And then after that, I'm going to ask you what thing you are most proud of. Sure. Um, yeah, this time to think book. I've, I realize how much I interrupt people and think like I'm contributing because I have answers for them. And that just doesn't, this sort I've been really confronted with this idea that when you think you're doing someone else's thinking for them, they don't learn anything because they're not able to think it through. And really the point of listening to someone is to help them think. I found that really profound. It's also quite hard. And I've become much more attentive to how often I interrupt people. And it's horrifyingly more frequent than I would have said. You know, like if you would ask me, how can you interrupt? I've said, I don't know, you know, and now that I'm paying attention, I'm like, good God. So, um, yeah, I've learned a lot that like, the other thing is like letting people talk and get to like the one, one metaphor I've heard for it is like, that's their train of thought and you're along for the ride. So let them go where they need to go. And let that be okay without me thinking I need to know what the destination is. So that's one thing I've learned. What about you? Oh, oh. Um, I wasn't expecting to answer. Um, I would like to actually say something different. I'd like to say something that I really appreciated that you've done in the last 18 months. And oh. it was recently when I misread and misunderstood... Um, <laughs> I already know it. Go on. Do you? Um, a legal document, and um, I, uh, the word was taxable, and I read it as tax, and thought that it was something that I needed to pay fifty percent tax on. And in fact, the answer was that 50% of it was taxable. And I... Um, at a rate significantly lower than 50%. At a rate significantly lower than 50%. Anyway, I, um, I was just going to comment on how uh, generous you were with not laughing at me. And also um, just the... Um, ability to sit with a uh, strong, emotionally polarized reaction. I was laughing, oh. and, laughing hysterically and crying at the same time. And I just, um, I'm just thinking about that, like, you know, you don't know where the, you don't know the destination of the train. So there's this like, sense of being on the train and you just never know where the train's gonna go and um the similarities between um not interrupting in a conversation and also being uh the kind of conversation partner teaching partner um and life partner who is able to just sort of hold that space of who the fuck knows where the train's going next and um, being okay with it and just like, just how valuable that is. Thanks, wow, Ray. What a lo lovely acknowledgement. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, that was really lovely. You know, it's funny because I feel like life is a lot about just 
anxiety management. Because learning is anxiety management, growth is anxiety management, and we're living in a particularly anxious time, you know, and the story that you told, you know, you didn't comment on it being what you, the capital gains tax you were assessed was going to be on your house sale, but that's very significant. And I thought I was going to have to pay (laughs) $500,000, $500,000 in taxes. Anyway, but the point is, you know, like, we all, every person, every human being is dealing with anxiety. And I think, you know, what was lovely about your acknowledgement is like, the, the goal is not to try and stop that. The goal is to try and be with that in a way that that anxiety can do what it does, which is, you know, be the energy that can actually help facilitate growth. If, you know, it can be seen what the root, what it's, what the assumption is behind it that's, that's driving it forward, right? And it's just interesting because I just watch like more and more that, you know, life isn't about sort of having answers. It's about being able to stomach anxiety. Right. Even in the thing, and the worst part of it is the stuff that we're really, really certain about when that gets jarred, that's really anxiety producing. But that is the, like, the, the, those are the best moments of growth. Right. And okay, no, what no, must... one, no one escapes that. What are we going to say? What are you most proud of? What are you most proud of? In myself or in other people? Uh, both in the last 18 months. Well, um, gosh, I'm really proud of our partnership and we you know we bought a house in the last 18 months and we're navigating a long distance relationship um and i think we have our relationship is stronger and clearer than it's ever been so i'm really proud of us oh that's awesome oh that surprised me I feel like I'm not often surprised. That was really beautiful. I like it when I can surprise you. (laughs) Um, Ryan is right. We bought a house. Um, I live in the house that we bought. It's on five acres of land. I've become feral. Um, We'll talk about that next week. Um, Thank you. That was really kind. And that was really beautiful. And yeah. Yeah, I feel like we do a lot of shit that other people wouldn't do because they can't manage their anxiety around it. And instead, I'm not, we just... I'm not sure how well we can manage ours either, <laughs> but we do it anyway. I was going to say, yeah, and we just, you know, well, I'm hysterically cry hiccuping laughing. Yeah, adulting is good with you. Mm. Um. Before we end, I just wanted to say one more thing uh, regarding Ryan's beer making. And that's that uh, when we lived in Vietnam, there was a uh, brewery, craft brew place called Pasture Street. And uh, they made a passion fruit wheat ale. And I probably drank a vat of it weekly in order to just get through Speaking of Life. anxiety management. Yeah, speaking of anxiety management, <laughs> we call it self-medicating via Pasteur Street. Anyway, um, I it's the only beer that I've really ever liked, and uh, Ryan made me some 
um, that he went off on his own and made his own recipe. And it's delicious. And I've been drinking it while I'm being feral out in the five acre woods. Um, and I just wanted to acknowledge uh, sort of where the, it's not an end point, but like the track on which really good foundations of education can get you, right? Like I've talked to people and they're like, my husband makes beer and it's shit. And I don't want him to make beer anymore. Can you talk to your husband? And I um, I think that it's a good example of the like implicit learning that occurs mm-hmm. when you're really turned towards the process of education and the process of thinking about education and thinking about learning and having that like learning mm-hmm. mindset that you're able to say, okay, I took a course, I learned stuff, I tried stuff, and then over the course of, what was it? It was probably, what, February? It was right before we went into lockdown. February 2020, March 2020, when you went to that beer course. March 2020 was my course, yeah. Right. So now we're at the end of August 2022, and you're making beer from taste of beer that you Mm. had three years ago right like that's really that's really cool Mm. that's really yeah well a testament to experiential learning turns out drinking beer is great for experiential learning (laughs) says every quest student ever (laughs) all right uh okay any last words before we lock this one down no, I thought this was going to be a quick check-in and didn't realize we had so much in us. Always. I didn't realize I had so much in me. I knew I did. Um, okay, so uh, our goal is to, um, now that we figured out new software, what happened is that we recorded a super awesome, amazing podcast with Jeannie. And it was great, except that Jeannie's voice didn't record. So it's a lot of me and Ryan laughing and then silence. So um, we are using new uh, podcast technology. I don't even know what you call this. So that we're able to do these podcasts with other people. Um, I think we're going to get David Helfand. Um, I think we'll probably go through our friends first. And I'm going to ask Jeannie if uh, Jeannie will come back and do a retake. And if you're interested, you can email us at dearauthenticconversations at gmail.com. That will have two C's in it, the end of authentic and the beginning of conversations. There are two C's, don't be worried. Um, And then we'll have you on and we'll ask you questions about what you learned and what you think about. And invariably, we will turn it back to education in some way. So that's all I got. You got anything else, Derby Talbot? I don't. Okay. Thank you for joining us. I hope you have a beautiful week. Uh, And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.